Good morning. It is 10.07. Jennifer Bukowski is going to be with us. You know that she is a brilliant criminal defense attorney, and she is, among other things, going to address what Alec Baldwin is facing. Uh, she's also uh, going to talk about uh, J.K. Rowling, apparently a trans activist, uh, went after her, and <laughs> apparently she handled it. Um, th- that's just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, she also wants to talk about uh, mysterious Russian deaths uh, and uh, a woman who was uh, raped at LSU. But those details will be coming at 1035. In the meantime, I, I'll give you this thing about uh, compulsory education because I didn't know this until today. So that's, this is two things I learned today. Every day you learn something. Today I learned two. But before I do that, I want to respond to a message I got from Diane. And this is the problem with Americans today. I'll read the message first, then I'll explain. She writes, My elderly father and thousands of rural Americans depend on the post office daily. There is no Internet service in many of these areas, and even cell phone coverage can be sketchy. He even gets his daily newspaper through the mail. Amazon, FedEx, and UPS don't travel there. The post office delivers most of those packages... It's not feasible for private industry to travel a quarter to a half a mile between stops. That's why they don't have cable or Internet service either in those areas. Private industry depends on specific number of consumers per mile. Ergo, if the government doesn't do it, Diane thinks it can't be done. And that's the problem that a lot of Americans have. We've had the government doing these things for so long, from public education to health care and everything else, that we don't think the private marketplace can work around it. But there are millions of people out there, Diane, who have different ideas on how that can be accomplished. For instance, uh, drones. They're using drones increasingly to deliver things. That's uh, one possibility. Uh, I mean, there are a million different ideas that people can come up with and will. A second thought occurred to me, and that is that if you choose to live in the wilderness, there are lots of things you have to struggle with. And maybe you have to move closer to civilization, or you have to drive a few miles to get your mail. Uh, Or, you know, I mean, there are just all kinds of things that if you're living in the middle of the woods, you don't get. Pizza Hut's not delivering. We shouldn't have the government subsidize it. So you can have pizza delivered. So my point, Diane, is in some cases there may be consequences based on what you choose to do. You choose to live in the middle of nowhere that things are going to be more expensive in some in some cases. And the other thought is you don't know about the ideas that other people have. We don't need the post office to get mail to your elderly father. It can happen in a variety of other ways. But we have to get past the mentality that, you know, we can take our neighbor's money in order to make our lives better. That's immoral. And that's, you know, you're suggesting we take taxpayer money, money that, you know, people have earned, and use it to subsidize delivery of mail. I don't don't think I like that idea.
Uh, Mark says uh, there was a guy that called into the afternoon. Well, this for those of you listening in Springfield. This uh, I'm not sure. If, uh, it, okay, this would be uh, from up north here. It'd be up in Columbia. He was complaining. Everyone on this radio station is just trying to hurt public schools. So I thought a leftist sounding uh, saying you might like. Trying out? What? Let me try this again. Brian, see if you get this. There was a guy that called into the afternoon show yesterday. Yes, I he do was recall complaining that. Everyone uh-huh. on this radio station is just trying to hurt public schools. Correct, yeah. So I thought of a leftist sounding saying that you might like trying out. Keep the money with the children, not the system. Yeah, we already have a, it's a, the dollar follows the scholar. Yeah. Mark, thank you. Uh, according to Fox News Network 2022, 43 million chickens and turkeys were euthanized because a bird flew. Just looking at local articles, approximately 14 million were destroyed in a four-state area. Average chicken will lay an egg a day, and there is a difference of laying hens and what you buy to eat. Takes uh, six to seven months from chick to laying. So it's not big chicken causing the price of eggs to go up? Somebody call Robert Reich and let him know. Uh, All right, let's move on. Public schools, I had no idea this was the case. In the early 20th century, it was the Ku Klux Klan uh, that fueled an interest in education. The greatest duty of America today is to build up our educational system. That sentiment probably seems anodyne, like something you might have heard on the campaign trail in the recently concluded midterms. A century ago, it represented the top priority of the Ku Klux Klan. Did you have any idea, Brian, that they were the ones that pushed for mandatory government education? No idea. I didn't either. Throughout the boom years of the early 1920s, the historian uh, Adam Lates notes in a 2012 History of Education Quarterly article, every local Klan group made education reform a leading goal of its public activism. Eventually, he writes, a push for compulsory public schooling overseen by a federal cabinet agency became the linchpin of the organization's agenda. While the Klan's sudden interest in it, why the Klan's sudden interest in education policy? Well, first and foremost, because of their uh, nativism and anti-Catholicism. Most private schools at the time were associated with the Catholic Church, while most public schools were openly, if unofficially, Protestant. By requiring all children to attend the latter institutions, Klan members thought they could strip Catholic parishes of an income source, reduce the Catholic hierarchy's ability to indoctrinate the next generation, and secure their own right to inculcate values instead. Um, The effort to shutter parochial institutions altogether would soon be halted. In 1922... Oregon passed a law requiring every child to attend a local public school. Supporters, including the KKK, admitted the aim was to drive all private schools in the state out of business. 
But before it went into effect, the Supreme Court deemed it unconstitutional. Undeterred, the Klan continued pursuing its education agenda in the public sphere. Members bullied Catholic teachers and principals into vacating public school jobs. They made donations of Protestant Bibles and agitated for mandatory Protestant prayer in religion classes and religion classes. And they lined up behind the National Education Association, the country's largest teachers union, as it lobbied over more than a decade for the establishment of the Federal Department of Education. So, my Democrat friends out there, you are doing the bidding of the Ku Klux Klan. The groups wanted an education department that would provide funding to schools across the country, thereby promoting literacy and patriotism. An influx of immigrants had raised concerns that pockets of the country were not being assimilated into the American way of life. Compulsory education was meant to build national unity. Wow. You learn something new every day. And I keep arguing, get your kids out of there. Uh, let's see, uh, Diane says, then if companies have better ideas, why haven't they done that? Diane is the one who said her father is out in the middle of the woods somewhere and can't get mail. Uh, with internet and cable, they have, Diane. You can get internet and cable via satellite. You no longer have to run a cable to the house. And you can't tell me that you can't get a satellite dish and get direct TV from anywhere in the country. So they can do it, and they have done it. So put your mind at ease. The private marketplace can make it happen. Mark says, uh, well, hey, I do like that better. Keep the dollar with the scholar. Uh, that was the... Uh, Education promotion. 874-9390. The toll-free number is 800-529-5572. The Vatican. Um, They're investigating something kind of ugly for the Catholic Church. Tell you about it next on the Gary Nolan Show, the Zimmer Radio Network. It is uh, 20 minutes after 10. Glad to have you with us. Uh, The Vatican is uh, probing apparently a sex party at a church in Great Britain. Uh, British Cathedral uh, during a COVID lockdown. According to a report, the Sunday Times says the claims are being looked at as part of an inquiry into the circumstances surrounding the resignation of Robert Byrne, former Bishop of Hexham and Newcastle, who stood down last month. You know, I really have a hard time understanding who thought doing that at a Catholic church would be okay in anybody's mind. I mean, that's just... Um, I don't even know where to go there. I mean, it just, it's just one of those stories I thought I would throw out there. Apparently, they they were getting horny and decided, uh, hey, let's have a sex party at the church. Good Lord. People are nuts. Um, if you've been uh, following the news, you know that there was another shooting. Um, and... Naturally, the Democrats are snapping into action, uh, and they and they want to go after a gun ban. So, for the record, as far as I know, based on everything I've read in both cases, they were using 
a semi-automatic handgun. For those who are uninitiated, semi-automatic means, like a revolver, you have to squeeze the trigger every time you want a bullet to come out. It, it, they Functionally, if you're using them, you do the same thing. You pull the trigger, bullet, pull the trigger, bullet, pull the trigger, fires. That's semi-automatic and a revolver, same thing. But now the, the Democrats are seizing on this, and, and I heard in the first case... Uh, they called it a semi-automatic assault pistol. <laughs> now, I've heard them use the term assault rifle, but not assault pistol. But again, this was just a semi-automatic handgun. Now, if you think that this is some modern-day mystery, semi-automatic guns, I will tell you that my favorite carry weapon, the gun that I like to use is a 1911. It was so named because that's when it was produced. Uh, this goes all the way back to uh, a war in the Philippines. Uh, the U.S. military was using uh, 38 caliber revolvers, and they were shooting at the uh, enemy, and they were still coming at them. And that's when they decided they needed a much bigger round. Uh, and they decided on uh, the 45 caliber. And uh, then... Uh, you know, the invention of the 1911. So this is over 110 years old, this design. It's not something new. And there were no mass shootings. And if you, you know, you think that perhaps that's because there weren't enough 1911s circulating, I will remind you that they used the 1911 in World War One, World War Two. They used it in Korea. They used it in Vietnam. Uh, I believe they quit using the 1911 in the 1990s. The military did. Uh, my father had two of them. I mean, they were ubiquitous then. They are ubiquitous today. So for the Democrats to suddenly come out and say we need to go after these, uh, these guns is ridiculous. It's not the guns. Clearly it's not the guns. They've been around for over 100 years. And we didn't have a problem with mass shootings. It makes as much sense. I'm going to, uh, and I'm doing this facetiously, so don't start lining up at the front door of the station complaining. But both of the shooters in California were Chinese. It makes as much sense to go after banning the gun as it would to go after banning the Chinese. It's not the gun, it's the people. It's, you've got a country of 330 million plus. You're going to have some whack jobs. And these two guys were both whack jobs. And banning guns isn't going to stop them. You can put in all the red flag laws you want. You can ban every firearm that you want. The bad guys will still have them. And it's, you know, and, and to call a semi-automatic handgun an assault pistol, it comes down as about as stupid a thing as I've ever heard. And again, for the uninitiated, un, uh, the AR-15, the semi-automatic rifle, fires the same way as the other two guns I talked about. You squeeze the trigger, a round fires. 
When you get right down to it, it's not different than a revolver in terms of the mechanism. You squeeze the trigger, you get around. You squeeze the trigger, it fires. You squeeze the trigger, it fires again. That's the way a revolver fires. That's the way a semi-automatic handgun fires. That's the way an AR-15 fires. So this push to ban guns doesn't make sense. But the Democrats, for some reason, want you to be disarmed. And they cannot possibly be so stupid as to believe that banning guns will somehow stop gun violence any more than banning drugs somehow stop drug use. Or banning alcohol suddenly stopped alcohol abuse. Doesn't work that way. It didn't work that way in any country in the world. But they're going to go after it. They're already making the noise. The governor's talking about it uh, in California and other Democrats as well. This, you know, the one of the best things about Missouri is that Second Amendment Preservation Act. It, it, it's just, it is the state to have to be secure. All right, uh, we got to move on. 874-9390-800-529-5572. Uh, Jennifer Bukowski, Bukowski, rather, I changed the pronunciation. She's going to be with us in a few minutes. Uh, as a defense attorney, I'm curious to hear what she has to say about Alec Baldwin and his manslaughter charge. Uh, she also wants to talk about the Supreme Court and the leaker report. Curiously, they were not able to figure out who leaked the uh, Roe v. Wade decision, or the anti-Roe v. Wade decision? Uh, she's going to talk about that. Uh, also, uh, Biden and his uh, classified document re rebuttals. It, it, he's pretty much admitting that he abused uh, top-secret information. And as a senator, how did he get top-secret information out of the skiff and bring it home? Because they found top-secret information from his days in the Senate at his house. And further, I think they tried to keep it a secret. I think <clears throat> when they uncovered those documents at the uh, Penn Biden Center, they went right to the archives in hopes of keeping it quiet. And it didn't turn out that way, and and now they're beside themselves. They need to check any place he's been. I mean, he's just leaving stuff behind in his garage, in his home, in his office. They are just recklessly and carelessly left everywhere. But that's okay. There's no there there according to Biden and the administration. We'll talk about that with Jennifer Bukowski. Also, M&M's, their mascots are being traded. We'll give you all those details when Jennifer is on with us at 1035. You're listening to The Gary Nolan Show. And it is the Zimmer Radio Network.
is the Gary Nolan Show. It is 1035. It is Tuesday. That means it's time for Jennifer Bukowski, brilliant criminal defense attorney. Uh, and uh, she is on board with us this morning to talk about Alec Baldwin. Uh, boy, uh, you know, I looked at everything that he did and things that he said. And as far as I can tell, I think he was it, he was irresponsible. And uh, that was the cause of the death. Jennifer, what say you? This is going to be an uphill battle for the prosecutor to prove involuntary manslaughter against Alec Baldwin. Because they, they'll have to prove that he was criminally negligent in his handling of the gun. Um, I think that that's going to be difficult considering there's testimony that it was handed to him saying cold gun. And so would a person you know, be unreasonable in handling the gun in the manner that he did while on that set. Now, one thing I think the prosecutor might be banking on is that he was a producer of this film, Rust, and there had been, you know, misfirings on set before this happened. There had been, like, ammunition on set before this happened, so they could maybe use that knowledge that he had to try to say that no one would have been pointing a gun in the direction of people, handling it in the careless, careless manner that he did, knowing that, you know, this was not a completely safe set with regard to using these guns as props instead of weapons. If I handed you a gun and said, it's okay, it's unarmed, pointed at Brian and squeeze the trigger, would you do it? <laughs> no, no, Why? I absolutely wouldn't. Why? <laughs> because... You know, you never point a barrel of a gun in someone and pull the trigger unless you're willing to kill her and destroy that person. Oh, you, you wouldn't take it. my word for it that it was empty? No, I've had a murder trial, actually, where everyone checks it, basically, when you're handling this gun. I had five different witnesses handling this gun during the murder trial. And even the last one, I'm like, okay, everyone's already checked it. The jury's sitting there like, yeah, we've all checked it. And the police officer's like, I better check it. You know, like, everyone's been sitting there all week and it's been checked a million times, but he still checked it before. I see. So you wouldn't do that uh, because you think it would be Gary, like, because you think it would be irresponsible, but he could do it. It wouldn't be a sign of irresponsibility. Well, I'm not an actress in a movie handling a gun that has, like, these dummy bullets in it so that, you know, on camera it looks like it's a loaded load gun because it's a revolver. So they have these things that are in there that are supposed to look like bullets but aren't really bullets. Yeah, and you're it's a real gun, and you know it's a real gun, and somebody says, it's okay, it's unloaded, fire away. Pull the trigger. Yeah. You wouldn't do it. He did. Well, in that case, I would have to, like, open the gun, open the bullets, and, like, shake them or something to see whether it's a real bullet or one of these just prop bullets that are just there to make it look like it's a loaded weapon. Not only Does that, that but you wouldn't point a gun at anybody unless you were defending yourself. And in the movies, they don't have to point their guns at people. They use different camera angles to make it look as though they are. That's certainly true as well. As well, yeah. So the prosecutor is that to work with. But I still think, you know, he's been told by others that this is a cold gun and he's handling it. And I don't know that they always, like, get out of the way because they are told it's a, a cold gun. I don't think that they necessarily 
do make it so that you never pull the trigger with people in that direction. But the scene did not require him to fire the gun anyways. And another problem he's going to have is talking too much. He did interviews. He did, you know, George Stephanopoulos had him on. And he's been inconsistent. And he had interviews with the police. And he said, oh, he didn't feel guilty because he didn't do any... He didn't feel any remorse or guilt because it wasn't his fault and all this stuff. And he never fired it. And, you know, you have the FBI for whatever that's worth. Like, we are not going to all of a sudden think everything that the FBI says is gospel. But they supposedly have tested this very gun and say, it's, there's no way it could have gone off by itself, as he's claiming. Uh, so I think they can make their case. I don't know if they're going to give him uh, five years in prison, but I think they can make their case. Uh, that he One was, thing that could have happened to Gary, and I don't know if you agree with this, but he could have been pulling the trigger as the hammer was already cocked back. He could have been cocking the hammer and having the trigger pulled, and maybe that could have caused some sort of release without him thinking he pulled the trigger because it's already been pulled. As someone well, familiar with guns, I'm not sure how it could have gone. But the FBI said it couldn't have gone off without him pulling the trigger, but maybe it was already pulled as he pulled that hammer back he'd already pulled the trigger i don't know oh let's okay but uh, in any event it's he's gonna have a lot of money to defend against this charge i'm not that surprised the prosecutor brought it because we know last year she requested a special three hundred thousand dollars to bring this case against him and that's another thing that gives me pause is that sometimes these prosecutors want to make a name for themselves and you know, go to spend all kinds of extra time and money going after someone because they're a celebrity in order, like Michael Jackson with that one case, they were flying witnesses all over the country and bragging about the millions they were spending on that prosecution back in the day. Sometimes, you know, it, there is inequity when people have money versus don't, but there's also, I've seen a pattern of prosecutors going after people extra hard because they, like Martha Stewart or what have you, because they want to make a name for themselves. We'll see, but this prosecutor said she's not going to go to the grand jury. She's going to have a probable cause hearing, and then it'll be up to the judge whether to continue this case. So Alec Baldwin, if his attorneys are good enough, could maybe get this case stopped before it even reaches a trial. Well, they'll try. Would you defend him? Oh, sure. Yeah, I think there's plenty to work with here. Well... And I would have to meet him and then make that decision. That's the nice thing of not being a public defender anymore is you get to choose whether or not your client, you take a client on. And when I was in, you know, private practice, depending on how much of a pain this person was going to be, would alter the rate that I would quote that person, you know, for their representation. <laughs> so, um, and you're working right now, uh, if I'm not mistaken, to help, uh, people who can't afford an attorney get help when they've been charged with a crime, right? Right. I just, uh, part-time I'm doing uh, Show Me Defenders. It's not for profit. I've set up and we do pro bono murder cases for the public defender's office. Way to go. Um, all right. You undoubtedly uh, have been watching and waiting with bated breath for the Supreme Court dis uh, 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 the, you know, the, the, the release of the uh, decision on abortion uh, came out, and I'm sure you've been waiting to find out who the leaker is. The report came out, and you don't know who the leaker is. Why? What do you think is going wrong? 
That's the that's what came out last week was this report. It was twenty pages long, saying they couldn't identify the leaker. They interviewed all of the people, eighty some people that had access to the draft of the opinion. Some of them multiple times. They had all but the judges sign affidavit saying that they didn't leak. And uh, there are a couple interesting things from this opinion I thought um, worth pointing out. But it's not shocking to me that they weren't able to find the leaker. Because if it is a court employee, like a law clerk, these people have to be um, pretty smart to get a job for a United States Supreme Court judge. And they're risking everything by doing this. So it would almost be a letdown if they would hire someone that is not only unethical enough to do this, but also not smart enough not to get caught, if that makes sense. But it was mentioned in this opinion that it could be someone outside the court because it was COVID and it could be someone that just had access to the home of an employee who brought home a copy of the draft. And that could be how it leaked. And I pointed that out at the time. I'm like, look, you know, it could be someone that is, you know, over, like, looking over the shoulder and sees their loved one's password get typed in and then logs in using that or, you know, has access to their briefcase or what have you. And uh, so one interesting line in there that I have not heard covered much in the media is that they had an item of relevance that they fingerprinted. They took fingerprints and compared those fingerprints to fingerprints of interest. But they never said what the item was or why it was relevant or whose fingerprints they compared it against and why those were fingerprints of interest. But after that, all that, they had no matches. But I, that really they, stood out to me. Did they interview clerks that left the court? It looks like, yeah, it looks like they interviewed the people. Well, I don't know that for certain, but it looks like they did interview all the people that... Uh, had access to it at that time, including individuals that didn't start working for the court until after the draft had been out a while. Because it was several, the draft came out in February, and this thing leaks like three months later. And some people started working in the interim, and so that's an angle that they looked at, too. I, uh, I, I don't think we're ever going to find out, or if we do, it won't be for decades. I agree with you. And, you know, Josh Hawley, our senator, he clerked there. And he said, this is unacceptable. Someone needs to be fired. But I clerked for the Missouri Supreme Court. And I don't know how you could make things such that no one could ever leak if they really had the intent to do so. And the court still be able to do its work. I mean, you need to have some degree of trust between law clerks and the judges in order to do the work of the court. And, you know, you have people that will print things out or whatever. You can have better logs on the printers. They tried looking at that, but printer logs, if they even have them, don't go back that far. But then still, how do you prove where the printouts were at all times? You know, you're just going to have to have some trust in the clerks and the judges not to disclose this like they never have before in the history of the court. Actually, I think they did. Didn't they do it once before? No, this is the first and only time. Oh. Okay, I thought. I thought. Now, there's been like gossip in D.C. where you know it's leaked out what the results of a case is going to be ahead of time, but it's never been such that an opinion, a draft of a real opinion, has gotten leaked. Like, there's no way we have a blue book in the legal world that tells us how to cite everything, right? There is no 
like method in the blue book of how do you cite a leaked draft of the United States Supreme Court opinion because it's never happened before. There's no precedent for it. So if there's any differences in the version, and there were a few, nothing really major, that got leaked, and the version that gets published, there's no way to like cite to the leaked version under the blue book. <laughs> All right, uh, we're up against the clock, but when we come back, a Louisiana sorority student, Madison Brooks, fatally struck by a car after an alleged rape. We'll find out what Jennifer has to say about this and give you the details next on The Gary Nolan Show. 1053, Jennifer Bukowski is on board. She is a brilliant criminal defense attorney uh, and uh, brings to the table a story about a Louisiana sorority student named Madison Brooks, who apparently was out drinking and got really toasted. Ended up in a car with, uh, uh, I guess, four guys. Am I right? Four guys? Yes. And, um, well... Was it rape? I mean, he asked her, and she said yes. She wanted to uh, to play, uh, and apparently they did. And then something ended up. Uh, she got out of the car. That said she wanted an Uber. Allegedly, uh, she got out of the car and uh, ended up getting run over and and killed. Yeah, this is a really tragic story, and I think it's just another example of uh, just. Making sure we get the word out to kids to make sure they remove themselves from situations like this and don't participate in them because you have four males, a 28-year-old uncle of one of them, two 18-year-olds and a 17-year-old. Uh, they were in a bar, or at least a couple of them were, and they see this girl. It's closing time. She's by herself. She's having trouble standing, sits back down, can't stand, stumbling around, and they decide to take her home. And obviously, like she said, too much to consent to have sex. So that's where the rape comes in. It wasn't like a forceful rape, allegedly, at this point, according to the affidavit. But one of them has sex with her, then the 17-year-old has sex with her. And then they're, I mean, on the way out to the car, she's pulling random car doors, not knowing which car to get into. She doesn't know where her friends are which is another issue. I hope that those people feel remorse over what's happened here. And eventually they just kind of drop her off in this area. She stumbles into the road and is killed by a car, but her BAC, Gary, was 0.319%, which would make most people unconscious. And so it's just a really tragic case all around. Um, not only for her, of course, but you know, the lives of these four people who made a terrible mistake and taking advantage of this girl and thinking, oh, well, we're asking her if it's okay, then we can have sex with her. No, I mean, that's not true consent under the law. And now you're charged with, uh, you know, it, they could have even been charged in Missouri with felony murder. It doesn't look like that's been the case here yet. But uh, they are charge in connection with her death so it's a it's a rough case beautiful beautiful girl here and the president of lsu she's an lsu student is calling it the attackers evil uh two of them were underage but they were all drinking uh yeah one are they gonna hold the bar responsible who are 18 I think that, yeah, there's definitely going to be inquiries into how does, she was 19, there's two 18-year-olds and a 17-year-old, all drinking in this bar at 1.35 in the morning. There's going to be an inquiry, I would be sure, into 
how their liquor license and were they checking IDs vigorously enough? Because they clearly were not being that serious about checking IDs if all these teenagers were in the bar. But does that make the bar owner in any way uh, legally uh, accountable for what happened? Not criminally, I don't think. Now, whether there could any, be any kind of civil lawsuit is another question. What would the I'm civil case? Sure I don't understand crazy. what the civil case would be. Uh, apparently, the seventeen-year-olds uh, were not so intoxicated uh, that they couldn't, uh, you know, uh, have a, a reasonable conversation, walk on their own. In fact, help carry her as she was apparently unsteady on her feet. So, it's not like having access to alcohol caused them to do this. Uh, there she are, was. I mean, I'm not a civil lawyer, but there are some situations where over-serving people can get bars into trouble. Yeah, but that wouldn't have led, um, that wouldn't make them responsible for what the guys did. Right, but she was certainly in mean, with a point three one nine. Now, I also wonder about that, like, were they drinking in between? Because she doesn't get killed until like 3 in the morning and she's leaving the bar at one thirty, and her, your alcohol doesn't immediately hit your bloodstream, but it would start coming down at some point. Um, so I wonder if they were drinking in the interim while they're driving around as well. That's not mentioned in the affidavit, but if the, the condition that she was in when they picked her up to take her home, they didn't know each other, indicates she was overserved a lot. Yep, and I uh, and I I've seen drinkers. Uh, I used to open the bar in Cleveland at five thirty in the morning, and these guys that had got off work at four o'clock the night before stayed out bar hopping until closing time went to uh, Denny's or some other place and grabbed uh, uh, food after the bar closed, had a six-pack in the car, and then at 5.30 when I opened the door, they come pinging off the door frames. They want another drink. Uh, wow. Yeah. Now, it, see, she, she, you think she would have been old enough to have that kind of alcohol tolerance, though? She's only 19. And, no. you know, she looked like she was pretty active, cheerleader and everything else, so... I, she, I thought about that, too, like, because some people can still be standing up walking around at, at BACs that would kill other people. Um, and this is a really high BAC. Maybe she had some sort of alcohol tolerance. I don't know. Well, it may be that she had been drinking for several years. And, and, you know, it wasn't something she started at 18. I don't right. know. Uh, my father had an incredible tolerance for it. But most people could never have kept up with him. Anyway, when we come back, Jennifer Bukowski and I are going to talk about an ex-wife moving across country and creating a break in a murder case. Next on The Gary Nolan Show. This is The Gary Nolan Show 